Hey, I'm Asher. And I'm Jackson. And what you're about to listen to is Strictly Confidential. Okay, that was a little too loud, but uh, we're probably not going to record a ska song in this episode, so I think I'll be fine. I don't like that you're closing doors on the possibility of our podcast developing into a ska band. Let me rephrase that because I do think I may have shut off some opportunity for us there. If anybody is listening and thinks, man, I like this podcast, but I would buy a lot more of these guys' records if they made a ska band, simply email us at... Um, no, but I, I think it would be fine if we started a ska band. I just, at this point in my life, I think I'm enjoying doing a podcast more than I would be enjoying learning how to play the saxophone. At the risk of our podcast becoming like quoting funnier Twitter, which is what most of our conversations end up being. It reminds me of the hard times tweet saxophone player gets stuck in traffic, accidentally creates decent punk band. I realized recently that not everybody goes through an, uh, short ska phase in their life but most of the men i knew younger and by men i definitely meant boys most of the boys i knew when i was a boy definitely had a ska phase and so we all know exactly what instant or what starts the process of going from liking ska to running a ska band it's a slippery slope but ska is like shingles you don't actually lose your ska phase it just goes into hiding is that how shingles works? Yeah. If you've you, had chicken pox, you have the shingles uh, strain, bacteria, whatever. It's always dormant in your body. You don't know how much I know about my body, my genuine human body, the, the thing I only ever get one of. What do you know? I know nothing about it. <laughs> I, you could tell me any symptoms are a part of shingles, and I would say, yeah, I mean, I mean, he knows, he knows more about it than I do. I, I, I believe him. Considering the process of how you found out you were allergic to prunes, I believe that. Well, it's dates, actually. Thank you very much. Now that I have have my allergy to dates and know very clearly about it, I am much less likely to gamble on other fruits. I've realized because I went to the store the other day the other day and said, I don't know the last time I had a prune, but I think I'm going to hold back for a little bit until the most delectable prune comes around because of my incident with the dates. Which is another way of saying never. Are are prunes not typically delectable? I don't think so. I've seen enough cartoons to know that they're supposed to just be for old people. I mean, it's always it's always the grandma character that's like, oh, my prune juice. I think it's also one of those things where it's semantically not a fun word to talk about. Like you're telling me you want you want me to eat something named a prune. There's a reason Flaming Hot Cheetos sells well. It's because that name is just catchy. it feels good going out of your mouth and they taste good going into your mouth. Like, Plus pruning is like you're removing what you don't want from another organic material. And plus, I think, and this is another thing that I probably don't know very much about because it is human body related, but can't your skin prune as well? Yeah. I being don't in a hot tub for too long. That's true. Also not something that, that uh, sparks my appetite. If my skin could hot Cheeto, I don't think I would enjoy eating hot Cheetos as much. (laughs) So I was going to complain about Amazon for a split second because that's the thing popular people do nowadays. All this damn convenience 
but oh, see, my life has been bettered by this service, but screw this. But see, that's the issue is that I have been trained and conditioned to think, OK, Amazon is telling me that this box of stuff I ordered is going to arrive Saturday by 9 p.m. And when I order stuff on the Internet, for the most part, all of my time spent until that thing arrives is thinking, I'm so excited for it to arrive. I'm so excited for it to arrive. I'm so excited for it to arrive. And so I ordered this book on Amazon on Thursday because the Internet and God told me that it would be here on at Saturday at 9 p.m. Now, we're recording this Sunday morning, but Saturday at 9 p.m. was last night. It has already passed. It has already passed. And I checked my Amazon app this morning and it said arriving tomorrow by 9 p.m. Mm. I've been so trained and my mind has been so coordinated and adjusted and set up to be where all I can think is I don't trust very many things in this world, but I do trust that Amazon, the faceless company based out of some random city that I probably should know, but don't will always get me my order at exactly when they tell me they will. I mean, you come to trust it because with the United States Postal Service, you might as well just throw your package into the back of a moving truck and like maybe that'll end up where I want it to be because you're taking such a gamble. The, I mean, I wasn't planning on making this a complaint about the U.S. Postal Service, but while we're here, they're the worst comp or organization I've ever worked with. Because I and Shannon runs an organization called the Budco. And if you have any interest about that at all, I'm not going to explain it well. So you should check out the Budco.org and it's incredible. But a lot of what we do is ship out products and send people like shirts and uh, books and stuff like that. And it's awesome. But they threw a conference for the organization in January, I think. So, but we threw that conference in Texas and had to ship a bunch of our stuff back to Utah where we live. Now, we did it through the US Postal Service and put $1,000 of insurance on it. But for some reason, the Postal Service has no internet record of any of this ever. Right. The only way you can get that reimbursement is if you get the receipt and have that receipt with you. And me being a complete bozo brain must have lost the receipt somewhere and couldn't find it. And the only way you can get your tracking number again, which this is crazy. So maybe if you're in a car, add that extra buckle from your passenger seat. Yeah. If you're having a hard time following along, get prepared because the righteous indignation is coming. The only way to get your tracking number back is by going to the post office you sent it from, finding the postal office attendant who sent it for you, asking them if they remember that day and helping them re-coordinate exactly when you got it so they can reprint all the receipts from that day. There is not even, I know this because I'm the one who went and found this out, me having to go to the post office for Jackson as a good friend would do, and I asked about this package that Jackson had sent, and they said like, oh, who sent that for you? I'm like, I don't know. What they, You have to have the specific client, not client, specific clerk who sent it log into their personal account, hope that they remember the day you sent it, then yeah, print out every single package that was processed by them from that day, and then you just look down the list and see if any of them looks familiar. And thinking about all this has made me think, you know what? I'm fine waiting until tomorrow to get my book. Yeah. Love you, Amazon. Don't know where I'd be without you, old Bezos, Bezos, 
Ezos. Uh, unfortunately, Amazon has left me with a crippling addiction to making purchases online, and that is an expensive habit. I'm going to need some fast cash. <laughs> What's a guy like me who has a never-ending, unquenchable thirst and a need for obscene riches and a surprising imperviousness to the bins gonna do for money? Well, some deep-sea diving for sunken treasure, of course. Jackson, are you ready to learn about the briny depths and the gold and valuables that are held within? I thought you'd never ask, Asher. Okay, where to start? We're going to start with the exact place that your mind already is. I was using a lot of synonyms to avoid the word pirate and pirate's treasure. So we're going to talk about Blackbeard first and just get this out of the way. This podcast or this episode of the podcast is not about pirates, but it is still the first thing that comes to your mind when you think of sunken treasure. So let's go first to Reader's Digest, who for... (laughs) That man made my job easy, has a great list called Incredible Undersea Treasures. They don't go very in-depth, but it's a good overview of a lot of different uh, treasures that have been discovered in recent history. And they say that any list of treasure will be incomplete without an honest-to-goodness pirate ship. I agree. The real-life Blackbeard's flagship, Queen Anne's Revenge. It ran around the coast of North Carolina, (laughs) didn't know that, in 1718. But the shipwreck wasn't found until 1996. And so Wait, no, what, what was those? What was that time frame? OK, it ran aground, not ran around, not ran amok. It ran aground on the coast of North Carolina in 1718. And Blackbeard, it was found? Uh, old school pirate. 1996. Right. That is almost 300 years. Just off the coast, the coast of North Carolina, the most famous pirate's ship was just waiting there. Uh, And it still wasn't officially confirmed to be Queen Anne's Revenge until 2011. They knew they had found what looked like a pirate ship and that there were pirate relics on board, including cannons and anchor. I don't really know if that counts as a pirate relic. I feel like a lot of ships in the 1700s had an anchor. I think also a lot of ships in the 1700s had cannons. That's a good point. It's like (laughs) (laughs) those two things by themselves don't really denote a pirate ship in the 1700s. They just denote a a ship that has the required things on board. Look, a mast, the sign of pirates. Uh, Well, they also found the hilt of a sword that may have belonged to Blackbeard himself, which is extremely cool. That makes a little bit more sense. (laughs) However, and this is the reason we're starting off with this. It's a little anticlimactic, not a single bit of gold or a single jewel has been recovered, at least yet. Um, in the meantime, all of the artifacts of the QAR, I guess we don't have the time to say Queen's Anne's Revenge in this one paragraph. You can find that at the North Carolina Maritime Museum in Beaufort. That would probably be pretty sweet, actually, to see. A, I've, you don't have to be a big history nerd to want to go see some pirate relics. You might have to be a big pirate nerd, but in this economy, who isn't? Okay, the most famous pirate of all time. His pirate ship, Queen Anne's Revenge, was found, and there wasn't any gold aboard. If anyone's going to have some gold, it's going to be Blackbeard, right? So this doesn't really bode well for our venture here. So how much sunken treasure is there actually out there? Like, how realistic is it to think that we can make any money at all excavating, not really the right word, scavenging sunken ships? Well, I got good news from the Consortium of 
ocean leadership, there's a lot. There's a lot of sunken treasure. Historically found, you mean? Historically found, but also, I mean, what we've found a ton of treasure. Spoiler for the rest of this episode. But we have not even scratched the surface. And I'm sure you're going to get to it, but how do we know how much more sunken treasure there is? It's a very difficult question because as people are quick to to throw this fun fact around, we know more about the surface of the moon than what's at the bottom of the sea. There is a lot we don't know about our oceans. About 95% of the ocean still remains mostly unknown to us. So So getting an estimate is pretty difficult. The estimate has to come from our spotty records of ships. Like we we can't really know the what the bottom of the ocean is and how many uh, shipwrecks it holds. But we do have at least some record from our written history of like whenever a ship is built, there's usually going to be some documentation of because it's usually for a government or a navy or merchant. So we can at least cross reference the number of ships that we know have been constructed and gone out to sea and then gone missing. Right. Okay. So we can kind of get an estimate of how many ships have gone missing. I feel like this is entirely entirely my niche because talking just about missing ships and missing nautical records seems like such a cool concept. You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's cool. An estimate of the value of all the sunken treasure and whether or not it's worth our time at all. Again, that begins with the number of sunken ships. So James DeGaldo, the director of the Maritime Heritage Program at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA, he estimates that there are at least a million shipwrecks underwater right now. Untouched. A million? Can we narrow down the area at which that probably takes place? Or for the most part, most of the ships would be? Like, are most of those ships in one ocean, in one part of one ocean? Or is it just globally there are this many ships and it's pretty evenly spread out? I guess the idea is that since we don't know where those ships are, all we can base that on is their last voyage, right? Right. We take their last voyage, the path they're taking, it could be anywhere along that line. Was quite a lot of, there's a lot of human history before we invented the black box. So ships and sailors sometimes just went missing, and no one would ever know what happened to them. Uh, It's got to be more difficult to find them than I'm thinking, because, I mean, I'm right now just sitting in a plastic chair in a room in front of a microphone, and there's a part of me that thinks, oh, should I try and find a sunken treasure? But if, if these million ships are known about but haven't been found, it's not just like, well, you just follow the path they were following and look underwater every couple hours. Yeah, it's the look underwater part that's tough. If the... Uh, Queen Anne's Revenge, if one of the most famous pirates, if not the most famous pirate, if his ship went down near the coast of the United States, why did it take us until 2011 to confirm it? It just has to do with the technology. We are okay. just now able to accurately search, like like the, the depth at which we can accurately search with equipment and not have to send down human divers to dig around with their hands in the dark. I mean... That's obviously pretty inefficient and dangerous. So no one does it like no one. You wouldn't just go to a spot where you think there's a ship and dive down. You have to have it like some sort of confirmation that there's something there. And we only now have the equipment that allows us to do that even somewhat consistently, accurately and to extract items remotely. Mm -hmm. Um, 
a lot of recent discoveries are owed in no small part to the uh, Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution's Remus 6000. I don't know what Remus stands for, but it's already a long enough name that I'm glad they have an acronym. The Remus can survey a site from above the wreckage and also, I mean, you can, now there's enough resolution that you can read inscriptions on coins and see the engravings on cannons from 30 feet above. And this is great also because pulling up artifacts from a ship is prohibitively expensive. So you want to make sure that it is a ship that is worthwhile. And that is how a ship called the San Jose was identified. And so, why we knew that it would be worthwhile because the San Jose was a shipwreck that we found off the coast of Colombia uh, just three years ago that is estimated to be worth $17 billion. So this device that we have that can check where the ship is, is it loosely like a, like a camera that goes down? Yes, but we also have equipment now that, all, that allows us to, I assume, crane game artifacts from the wreckage. That, of course, is probably very delicate because when you have anything that has sunk to the bottom of the ocean hundreds of years ago that is largely made of wood, it's pretty brittle. And more than just doubloons and jewels, there's also the historical significance of a shipwreck, and you want to preserve it as best you can. And sometimes that means not touching it. Man, Shannon would be so good at that. Yeah? She is amazing at claw machines. Like That's a cool skill to have. Every time she is near a claw machine, she'll look in there and say... I bet you I could get that Pikachu. And every time she's gotten the Pikachu. Your house is now flooded with Pikachus. I can't stop. I need help. It has saved you a lot of money on soundproofing. It's true. I'm completely surrounded by Pikachus right now. Wall-to-wall stuffed animals. You don't have to get the foam. So this story about the San Jose comes from History.com of History Channel fame. So mm. uh, we've got a pop-up here. Ice Road Truckers season 14. Nice. Well, let's go ahead and close that. When salvagers found a 300-year-old ship at the bottom of the Caribbean near, uh, and also, I have, still have a hard time not saying Caribbean, thanks to Jack Sparrow and his friends, uh, they claimed it was the holy grail of shipwrecks, the legendary San Jose Galleon, a Spanish ship rumored to contain $17 billion in treasure. And now the Associated Press reports, experts have identified the ship and confirmed it's the real deal. Remains of the Spanish galleon were discovered in Colombia in 2015, but details of the find are only now being revealed with permission of the Colombian government and agencies that have worked on the search operation. Obviously, they want to keep the general location a secret, because when you say there's billions of dollars at the bottom of the ocean, a lot of people are going to start practicing how long they can hold their breath. And so was the San Jose, you may have already said this, but was the San Jose a pirate ship or was it just a Spanish galleon loosely that had a bunch of stuff on board. Well, you didn't have to see a sparkling glitter beneath the ocean waves to estimate that this was a valuable ship because the San Jose, we knew, had gone missing and it was a part of the Spanish treasure fleet. Literally called oh. the treasure fleet. And one of those goes missing, it's, you're upset about it. It's a yeah. convoy of ships that transported valuable items from the Spanish Empire back to Spain. And that was very risky business, says History.com, because at the time, Spain and France were involved in the War of Spanish Succession, and that pitted them against England, and that meant that there were attacks on Spanish trade vessels like the San Jose. So this massive 64-gun galleon came under fire in 1708 and sank. 
in its entire stash of emeralds, silver, gems, completely intact. So now the wreck has been identified thanks to the engravings on its canyon, uh, canyons, on its cannons. Like I said, <laughs> with Remus, they were able to see um, what kind of fun art did they have on there? Uh, feature, the carvings have featured elaborate dolphins, and that was used to confirm the ship's identity. I guess they knew that the uh, San Jose had dolphins on the cannons, and not many other ships would have that. And when they found, so when they saw the dolphins, they knew they had found a payday. So. Uh from figuring out that there were dolphins on there, do you think they could figure out this voyage's porpoise? Oh my god, moving on. The ID is expected to play into ongoing legal battles about the ship. Because it's heralded as one of the most significant archaeological finds in history. But when there's this much money involved, it immediately sparked a bitter battle over who discovered it first. And man, when do you think that finders keepers really matters when you're talking about a sunken ship, a, literally a treasure ship. I are you? Do you mean from a government l legal standpoint? A lot of these ships that have been found recently are sitting there untouched because we can't figure out who they belong to. It's. I mean, you you want to believe that the treasure hunter finds it, and that's their stuff because they found it. But uh, if we have records of the ship leaving Spain. And it belonging to Spain, and we can confirm that it is that same ship, then that still is property of Spain. So is there a kind of ethical dilemma here where you have to figure out, okay, is it worth me going down there to get the treasure off of this ship if in a year the Spanish government has been going to say something like, hey, we have records saying that's our ship? Right, because, I mean, it's you have to have a, a big... There's a large investment that goes into... I keep saying excavating. I'm aware that's probably not the right word when we're talking about something underwater, but recovering a sunken ship is very expensive, and you want to make sure that you get some return on your investment. And it, it's just tough because how much time has to pass for something to become free game? And is that time? does that time ever come? Because with certain things online, there's time for that. Like, with, with certain copyright laws, there's time for that, but... The Spanish government owning a ship full of treasure. Is there ever a point at which the world says, well, old Jeffrey Water Diver found all of this treasure. I think it's his now. You guys, you guys lost this ship 500 years ago. You don't get it anymore. Right. Because these aren't government operations. These recoveries. Right. These are private institutions, sometimes even individuals, literal I mean, treasure hunters. There's definitely the argument that like, OK, we know that this is a Spanish galleon, but if we didn't do this work, you would have never gotten this. They, you weren't even making an effort to recover this treasury and we found it. And we're the ones who are like we, we were paying the expenses to recover it. Should it not belong to those people? All of these w ships would stay at the bottom of the ocean if there wasn't at least some gain you could get from the hard work of, of recovering it. I'm imagining these are less glamorous than the opening scene of the first National Treasure movie where they are in some frozen wasteland and find the ship with all the stuff at the bottom and then the bad guy blows up the ship or something. And it's that kind sounds of about right. Haven't seen that movie in a while, but that sounds like what that movie would start with. Uh, it's 
it's not glamorous, but it's very much the idea that these guys are treasure hunters and Nicolas Cage's character, who I'm just going to call Nicolas Cage, has the only focus of I'm going to find this for America. I imagine that the people who are who are getting better and getting good at digging up these treasures are less saying stuff like I'm going to find this for America and are more saying stuff like I'm going to I'm going to find this for my Bank of America checking account. <laughs> well, there's a good example of what it means to be a modern day treasure hunter uh, and how you would avoid these conflicts of interest. Uh, we can jump over to the Chicago Tribune with their clickbaity but not inaccurate title. Treasure Hunter found three tons of sunken gold and can't leave jail in Ohio until he says where it is. <laughs> the third ton will surprise you. That sounds like a plot synopsis of a movie that I really would watch. But would not rewatch. <laughs> Okay, we're going to talk about Tommy G. Thompson. Thomas Thompson. (laughs) Real fast, you took so long between each word that the next word I was so ready to guess. Tommy E. Bahama. (laughs) I wasn't trying to set you up. I just I'm, I'm trying to emphasize how ridiculous and excellent this guy's name is. Thomas Thompson, treasure hunter. That's a great business card. Would put that in my wallet. I'd put that on my fridge. While it's cool that we have these treasure fleets from Spain, what if you are a treasure hunter like Thomas from the United States? Where are you going to get untold sunken treasure riches in the United States? We can go back to the California gold rush. That was the aim of Thomas Thompson when he tried to uncover the American equivalent of a treasure fleet, the SS Central America was a steamer that went down in a hurricane in 1857. It took 425 souls and at least three tons of California gold to the seafloor off South Carolina. Many tried to find it, but none succeeded until a young shipwreck-obsessed engineer from Columbus, Ohio. He built an underwater robot called Nemo to pinpoint the Central America and then dive 8,000 feet under the sea and surface with the loot. So again, this is his contraption. This is an individual who has was an engineer and was obsessed with shipwrecks who created the device that could pinpoint and extract loot from this ship. Okay. Uh, Columbus Monthly noted in a profile that he was a man as personable as he was brilliant. Thompson recruited more than 160 investors to fund his expedition. And he spent years studying the ship's fateful voyage, developing the technology to plunge deeper into the ocean than anyone had ever done before to retrieve treasure. Uh, There's a cool photo of him that looks like the cover of a magazine where he is holding a um, a $50 Pioneer gold coin in front of his eye in 1989. So he became a famous treasure hunter in the late 80s, uh, having uncovered... Tons of rare 19th century American gold coins and the ship also they also recovered gold bars that were 15 times bigger than the largest California gold bar that was previously known to exist. 15 times bigger. That is a honking. That is a log of gold. 15 times bigger because I'm imagining a gold bar. 
I was imagining that a gold bar pretty much being the size of your traditional brick, right? Yeah. 15 times that. Of just solid gold. So let's put three across, two up. So that's six. That math doesn't exactly work. That's huge. <laughs> Carry the one, divide the five, and it's ginormous. I, Potentially uh, worth $400 million in gold alone. The treasure trove is the richest in American history, and the deep water salvage effort is the most ambitious ever undertaken anywhere. And it's all headed up by one guy. So where did he go wrong, and why is he in jail now? He was the hero in the 80s. Undoubtedly, like, this is coming off the heels of Indiana Jones. It was probably pretty easy to idolize him as a romantic treasure hunting hero. Mm -hmm. But, uh... As we've learned, you can get pretty dicey with the ownership of gold. And uh, it, I'm sure when you have millions that used to belong to someone, the if it's a company or rather a family or a private party, they say, hey, our great, great, great granddaddy lost that gold and it belongs to us. Uh, plus, he had to pay back the 160 investors that helped him fund the creation of Nemo and the process of surfacing the loot. He would rather just disappear with the money. That is where he came into some trouble and a manhunt was launched to find this guy. The investors were owed about $20 million that he had not paid back. And this right. was, and this remember, this was 1989. And we're talking about his arrest in 2000s. And in the, uh, yeah, he was taking the court in the 2000s. So a lot of time passed without him paying back what... People were owed. Uh, he basically used investors' money, found the treasure, got the treasure, and then hightailed it. That's a simplification, but that is what happened. And by the time that they started searching for him, he had a lot of means and about 10 years a head start. They found him because his girlfriend checked them into a hotel, Not, I guess not using a fake name or using a fake name that was not convincing enough. They discovered a mansion in Florida that they had been paying for with cash, where they found disposable cell phones, money straps that were stamped with $10,000, and literally a guide for evading law enforcement called How to Be Invisible. <laughs> that they had owned or written? It, no, that they were following as a guide. They had not, they had not written. They, were, they had printed off their PDF on evading law enforcement. And just left it lying around. These three things that they have done, like checking into a hotel with a not convincing fake name, paying for anything you own in cash, and reading a Googleable PDF about how to stay invisible, are the first three things I would come up with in maybe 20 minutes of trying to determine how to hide from the government. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this guy was genius, but everyone has, I mean... Everyone has their flaws. It took me 10 minutes to realize that 15 gold bars would be about the size of two Xbox Ones. I think <laughs> if you just lay them out <laughs> and then put two at the back and then stack another two on eight. No, shoot, that's still... All that matters is it makes you rich! If this guy had paid out his investors and lived normal life, would the ethical question then be, does the family who owned this money deserve the money instead of him or not? I think so. We never really got to question the, like, we never really got to address that because after he'd done his interviews and, and after the, the buzz had died off about this treasure hunter, I mean, no one cares about the legalities and people are like, oh, this dude found this treasure that he... 
did it himself with private investors. That's amazing. You go on the talk show, you do an interview, and who's going to buy the magazine that comes out that details the legal proceedings of him paying his investors incrementally over the next 20 years? Uh, it wasn't until these investors were like, hey, wait a second, we're, we've been ripped off, and they were able to muster the, uh, you know, they, they were able to get law enforcement to launch an investigation much, much later that any of this became an issue at all. As of 2016, he was still in jail with the expectation that he would admit to where the gold was hidden so that he could use a portion of it to pay back his investors. Uh, in 2018, that payout did happen, although apparently he still hasn't revealed the location of the gold. Not sure where the, where the money for the payout came from, but that treasure is still out there and he is not talking. So the idea here is that this guy was able to escape with all of this money, similar to stuff in the Ponzi scheme era loosely, but he was able to escape with all this money because somebody helped pay off all of his legal fees? Pretty much. And that is lucky. But there's no one left to complain. Everyone has their money and everyone's happy. But this is still just one case we're talking about. And no, I mean, here's a general statement starting with specific details and then branching out to a broad overgeneralization like we normally do. Yeah. I don't think many ships leave port without something valuable on them. Ever since there's been boats, if you're going to go to the effort of taking the risk of crossing in the ocean, even if your primary pur purpose is to transport people, there's gonna be valuables aboard. And so of these millions of shipwrecks, I would imagine that most of them are pretty worthwhile. Maybe not gold doubloons, but at least there will be historical significance. And so the question is less, would it be worthwhile for me to go get what's in this ship because there might not be something valuable? And more, would it be worthwhile for me to go get what's in this ship because what if I get it and the people who actually descended from the people who own this ship care more about it or care enough about it to reach out and say, actually, that's mine? I think so. Because finding the ship is going to be easy. We have the technology... We, we don't even have to dive down there anymore. We can just crane game that stuff up. So clearly that's not the problem. But uh, I think I'm fine with just the credit, man. I, I think even if I don't get the loot, being known as a treasure hunter, it's a reward in and of itself. And I think the romantic in me loves the idea of the treasure hunter being able to see, I see all this treasure down here and these historical, uh, Im historically important items and all of this. I'm so excited to bring it up and get all the credit and the money and everything for it. But I also realized that if I spent 15 minutes Googling my family and found out that, hey, this ship that just came up worth $2 billion is technically and legally mine, I'm going to get pretty excited about that. Yeah, like you're not going to be staking your claim on that? Yeah. No chance. I think for the most part, the romantic in me wants to see treasure hunters succeed. Oh, absolutely. And I think worst case scenario... We end up with more national treasure movies. That's a pretty good worst case. Well, even if you're afraid of the ocean, like millions and millions of people are, I still have a hidden gem that you can access pretty easily. You can just go to iTunes or Spotify or any place that streams music and look up the album Burden of Proof by Glen Merle. He has a song on that album called Threadbare, and that's our theme song and our outro. It's a great song, and he has a new EP that came out pretty recently that we have been exclaiming how good it is, and it's true. So definitely give that a listen. Yeah, um, his music is very good, and I don't know if he's recording more because he just released this one, but I hope he does because every song he's released is a jam. 
Uh, yeah, if you want to follow us on our social media, we post there pretty regularly about what we're up to. We give quick announcements about what we're doing next. We post about each episode. I know that for me, finding what episodes a new podcast is talking about is way easier to do on Twitter and Instagram than me actually going to the effort of opening another application. Are you kidding me? Uh, but yeah, if you want to follow us on any of those, we've got an Instagram at Strictly Confidential Show and a Twitter at S Confident Show. And we post on both of them to let you know, hey, today we're talking about uh, pirate shipwrecks or hey, today we're talking about whatever we talk about next week and that kind of thing. So yeah, follow us there. And then if you want to shoot us an email, we've got an email address at strictlyconfidentialshow at gmail.com. Different topics have been given to us and said, hey, why don't you research this? And then some people will even send us a topic and say, hey, I know a lot about this. And we'll say, hey, why don't you tell us about it instead? We love having people come on and tell us things on the show. Um, and so, yeah, you can send us information about stuff you want us to talk about. If you have a critique about something we talked about and want to give us a correction, because we are not experts in almost anything we talk about. If you wanted us to only talk about things we're experts in, you would have a very different show. I mean, I'd be talking about King of the Hill and you'd be talking about what? Um, man, really put me on the spot. All I know is this podcast would have lasted for about three episodes if it relied entirely on our expertise. And the full list of listeners would be our families. <laughs> and they would not have enjoyed it. If you have a best friend and you enjoy this show, tell your best friend they should listen to this show because word of mouth is the best way for any, anything to grow. Anything. Anything. Tell your mom about the succulent you've been killing. Bring it back to life. I think that's all we do here, bucko. Yep, that's all we do. So until next time, I've been Asher. I've been Jackson. And you've been listening to Strictly Confidential. And as always, stay swashbuckling. Oh man, is there a better word than swashbuckling? Swashbuckling.